This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, are you ready to study God's Word together this morning? You take out your listening guide this morning. We're actually going to be all over the Bible today. And if you would take out your listening guide, that would help you follow along with me as we make our way through this morning's message. The the scriptures that I will be referencing today, they'll be on the screens all around the worship center for your benefit. But first, allow me to set up where we're going in our new sermon series this fall. So this week marks 14 years since we held our first core group meeting that would eventually become Mill City Church. Um, It was in an apartment right across Bridge Street in the uh, Boot Mills Apartments, and I don't think even I could have imagined what God would do through our church and ministry over the last 14 years. The way God has chosen to bless us, he's chosen to use us, he's chosen to grow us. We just simply rejoice over what God has done in and through our church during that period of time. But I am convinced as I have been in ministry for as long as I have been, and even as I progress through doctoral studies and process through North American missions and and reaching North America for Jesus, I am convinced that for a church to remain perennially fruitful in ministry, but also to remain faithful regularly faithful to the unique mission that God has given and entrusted to them and their communities, I truly believe that it is incumbent to periodically reconsider and reaffirm and rally around the values and the vision that motivated them to start in the first place. And it's been one of my practices here for the last 14 years. And as I considered where I would go this fall in the scriptures coming off of sabbatical from this summer, this is really where I've landed. When I look over the last couple of years at just the ups and the downs and the comings and the goings of our individual lives, but also just everything that's gone on around us with the pandemic, being away from each other for an extended period of time. We've had many members who have moved on during that time. We've welcomed in a lot of new members. There are many of you who are brand new to Mill City. It's just a perfect opportunity to say, who are we as a church? Where are we going? What do we care about? What do we value here? And it's just an excellent opportunity for all of us to be able to reaffirm what it is that God has put on our heart here at this place. And so... That is where we are sermon series. So towards that end, this fall, I want to welcome you to a sermon series that I've entitled Threads, Values That Weave Us Together as a Church. Just as a knitter takes a kaleidoscope of thread to knit together a beautiful tapestry or a blanket, I'm going to highlight 10 values from the scriptures that really weave together to color the dynamic community that we call Mill City Church. They're not our only values, but I would say that the 10 that we're going to highlight this fall, they form the basis from which everything else we, stem, everything else we do stems. And I think that what you, and you know, what I hope that you see 
over this time, for those of you who have been a part of our church for a long time, that you're just reaffirmed to say, man, this is why I've planted my life with this faith community. And for those of you who are newer, I hope that what this does is gives you a little bit more of a glimpse and deeper understanding of who we are and what we care about so that you can choose to say, man, I really want to embrace that type of church. Or you might consider, okay, I didn't know that. Perhaps this, perhaps this is not the best place for us to, to plant our lives. And we're the type of people at Mill City who will say, come talk to us because our number one passion here is that every Christ follower would be engaged with and committed to a local gospel preaching church. And we want that to be us. But if it's not us, we would love to help you find that place in the area where you can serve unreservedly and wholeheartedly. And so that's the purpose of this sermon series this fall. And I hope that excites you. I hope that animates you. Um, It's definitely got me excited for the fall semester. Today, we're starting this series by really asking the question, why do we even exist to begin with? And what actually motivates us to do everything that we do, both as individual Christians and collectively as a church? And that ultimate motivation is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. We ultimately planted Mill City Church for God's glory. God's glory is the very reason that Mill City exists today, and it is God's glory that animates every single thing that we do in ministry. But you might be asking the question, well, what does it mean to exist for the glory of God? What does it mean to glorify God in what we do? Well, God's glory means his fame or his renown. The New Testament Greek word is the word doxa, which is one of the root words in our English word doxology. You can start seeing the connections there. In other words, at its most basic level, glory simply means worship. So to say that our church ultimately exists for the glory of God is to say that our church ultimately exists to worship him. Not just on Sunday mornings, but through everything that we do. And so if you'll take out your listening guides I want to illustrate what this means for both your life individually and our church's life collectively. I want to walk you through what I see as a linear meta-narrative of the scriptures. So let me start with these two foundational truths. Number one, God's glory is his supreme passion. God's glory is his supreme passion. The scriptures show us that God is indeed passionate for his own glory. And the first time we see it in scripture is Exodus chapter 14. Perhaps you remember this, the epic showdown between God and Pharaoh as God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery. Three times in Exodus 14, God says he will get glory over Pharaoh. You go on and you see multiple instances in the book of Isaiah In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says that he is 
the Lord, and he will not give his glory or praise to any other. And then you go a few chapters later in that same book of Isaiah, in chapter 48, verse 11, God says that even all of his intervention and all of his rescue of his people, even that too, he does for his own sake. And he reiterates in verse 11 there that he will not give his glory to any other. You go over to the New Testament and Jesus, speaking of his impending death, aligns his prayer with the Father's glory. In John 12, Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and God said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Brothers and sisters, just through this little sample and also through what we're gonna see for the remainder of our time together today, here is the biblical theme that we get from this simple snapshot. God is all about God. And I know that that shocks some of us. And some of us, even when I say that, it might even evoke some levels of discomfort within us. But the scriptures show us that God is all about God. His glory is his supreme passion. Now, this is foundational for us. Because how would this change the beginning place the starting place that we have with our children in children's church. I mean, we're used to God loves you. But what if we started with, look, God loves God. (laughs) And as we're gonna see through the text today, because God loves God, he also loves you. But we're not the starting point. He is the starting point. Now, someone might say, well, that makes me uncomfortable. That, that makes it seem like God is selfish, prideful, that God is even egotistical. But if God is not going to be supremely passionate about his glory above all things, then whom would you suggest him to exalt above all things? If God is not passionate about himself and his own glory, whose glory would you suggest him be passionate about? Uh, Pastor Louis Giglio brings helpful resolution to the tension that we might feel to this truth. He says, so if God is God and he knows who he is, God must perpetually exalt himself in all things. For if God failed to exalt himself in every possible way, he would exalt something or someone else as central, someone or something that was not central at all. This would make God both unwise and unloving. Unwise because it would demonstrate that he didn't know what was best. Unloving because he would be allowing our attention and our affection to be aimed towards something that was less than the very best. But since God encompasses all wisdom and is the source of pure love, he has no choice but to exalt himself above all things. I believe that this is helpful. I believe this is helpful for us. You see, if you or I 
were passionate about our own glory above all else, then yes, that most definitely would make you or me an egotistical narcissist of epic proportion. But not so with God. Because you see, God, God is not being pretentious. He's only being true to his own character. For God to fail to be passionate about his, for God to fail to be passionate about his own glory, it actually would be very unloving toward us, as Giglio referenced. And that actually leads me to our second foundational truth this morning. Not only is God's glory his supreme passion, but the scriptures also point us towards the fact that his glory is also our supreme satisfaction. The Bible goes further to link his glory, God's glory, to our own search for personal satisfaction. The human life is one long, epic journey trying to satiate our deepest desires. And we try to satisfy them through work, education, money, relationships, sex, fashion, a social media presence, whatever it might be, we're searching for something to ultimately satisfy us. But if any of us is truly honest in this room, all of the things, even the very good things that we have pursued, the very good things that are in our life today, if we're very honest with ourselves and with others, we would say, it's great, it's a gift, but I still long for more. It's because we're built for something more. We were made for something that is not found in this world alone. And the Bible points us in this direction because in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, the Bible actually tells us why God created us. You might have come in this morning going, why am I here on planet Earth? Well, there are very different things that every one of us can do on planet Earth, but the Bible definitely tells us the ultimate motivation, the ultimate reason for which God created you and me. And here's what Isaiah 43, 7 says, that God created us for his own glory. His glory is what God created us to run on. So to put it in our cultural vernacular, America may run on Duncan, but our souls are meant to run on the glory of God. Ephesians 1.12 teaches us that Jesus even saves us to the praise of his glory. And so this morning, it would be good for us to remind ourselves as Christians that there are many secondary and tertiary reasons why God loves you, why God blesses you, why God saves you, or why God acts on your behalf. This might include providing for your needs, giving you an eternal home in heaven when you die, or even setting his affections upon you loving you, but, and this is a really big theological but this morning, there is an overarching primary motivator behind each of those actions. 
It's for his glory. And his glory is what will ultimately satisfy you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism centuries ago summed all of this up this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But if you're anything like me, you look around the world today and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of living for God's glory going on. As a matter of fact, more introspectively, if you just look inside of your own heart, you know that oftentimes you don't seek satisfaction in God's glory the way he designed you to do that. Why is that? Well, there are two foundational truths that we see through the meta narrative of scripture, scripture, but there's also one universal problem. And that universal problem is sin. It's sin. And human sin is far more than simply doing bad things or having bad thoughts. Sin is actually a condition of the heart. It's a spiritual cancer that infects every human being at the moment of conception and runs through our veins every day of our lives. And as terribly as sin damages our relationships with others and damages even our relationship with ourselves, sin's most damaging effect is, it a way, is the way it affects our relationship with and the way we relate to God. Sin actually severs your ability to enjoy God's glory the way you were created to do. I don't want you to miss this today. I believe that this could be a revolutionary, radical truth for many of you in this room. I want you to look at Romans 3.23 with me and the way Paul describes human sin and the way he relates it past your own heart, past this life, and directs it upward with the glory of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, okay, we get that, we understand that, for all have sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't this interesting? And you cannot overlook this when you recognize the fact that Isaiah 43, 7 says that God created us. The reason he created us, the motivation behind that was for his glory. And then the New Testament apostle says that all have sinned and fallen short of that glory. So the Bible tells us that you were created for God's glory, but because of sin, you fall short of it. Thus... Don't miss this. Sin prohibits you from actually fulfilling the very purpose for which God created you. And in the process, here's what sin ultimately causes us to do. Romans 1.21 through 23 explains the deleterious effect that sin has on the human race. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to God. 
but they became futile in their thinking. Brothers and sisters, this is not all those people out there. This is all of us. This is all of humanity. They became futile. We became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Look at this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here is what we humans ultimately do. We exchange God's glory for self-glory. This is the ultimate indictment of human beings. It is the ultimate plight of humans on earth. It is the ultimate problem that must be solved. We exchange God's glory for self-glory. Paul Tripp, um, who is a masterful writer and Christian biblical counselor, he tells the story of a children's birthday party. See if you might uh, identify with this a little bit. He tells the story of little Susie sitting at the head of the kindergarten table with presents stacked so high you could barely see her little face. And, And as her classmates sat around the table... admiring Susie's stack of presents while looking at their own little sandwich bag of party favors, one little boy was not too happy. Johnny looked inside his sandwich bag to find two Tootsie Rolls, a lollipop, and a plastic whistle. And comparing it to Susie's stack of gifts, Johnny got angrier and angrier. He couldn't enjoy the party. And finally, one of the mothers who was in the room to help out, she had had enough. She came over to Johnny's seat at the table. She knelt down to look him in the eye, and she simply said, Johnny, it's not your party. It's not your party. Tripp goes on to say, as I think about my life and the glory of God, I need to remind myself that this life is not my party. You and I have been born into a world that was created to celebrate God. This life is not our party. This life is bigger than your marriage. It's bigger than your job. It's bigger than your kids and their accomplishments. It's bigger than your vacation or personal comfort. This life is bigger than you. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us need to hear that for the first time this morning. Some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. Because Romans 1 teaches us that we humans have exchanged God's glory for our own self-glory. And in doing so, what we've done is we've convinced ourselves that life on earth is ultimately our party. That it's about us. We think that we humans and even ourselves more particularly, that we are the center of the universe and that God exists in order to meet all of our needs, grant all of our wishes, and fulfill all of our desires. That's why when we are left to ourselves, 
apart from God, each of us chooses our own way to live. We pursue our own desires. We do our own thing. We live our truth. And then we take great pains to justify it to anyone who would question us. But in the end, we all end up being what Tripp would call glory robbers. We're glory robbers. We rob God of his glory by shining the light on our own. This is how sin muddies our outlook. But thanks be to God this morning. Thanks be to God that he doesn't look at us. He doesn't look at us in our glory robbing state and just leave us mired in our own bog of sin and self glory. Rather than casting us out of his party, God took the initiative with us and he actually invites us into his eternal story. He wants you and me to be a part of it, but he will not be second place. God will not compete with you. He gets first place and he deserves first place. God invites us into his story, though, and through his son, Jesus Christ, God actually entered into our world of self-glory in order to turn our attention upwards to his own glory. And that leads me to the next stop on this morning's linear meta-narrative of the Bible. The foundational truth of this universe is that God's glory is his supreme passion, and his glory is our ultimate satisfaction. But there is one foundational problem, and that foundational problem is that sin severs our affections for God's glory and refocuses us, on, refocuses us to go away from our own self-glory. And this actually prohibits us from filling the, fulfilling the very reason why God created us. But here's the good news. There is one transformational solution. And that transformational solution is the gospel. It's the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6, I love how the Apostle Paul links faith in Jesus' gospel to the glory of God and our own hearts. Look at what he writes here. And even if our gospel is veiled, you might want to think, misunderstood. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here it is. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is at creation, right? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to geek out for a moment. <laughs> I love this picture. This picture is amazing. It's transformative. It's radical even to the very human-centered Western church. Because in the Western church, what our sermons focus on, what we focus on in our Bible studies, when we focus on our evangelism, that missions, evangelism, it's all about, do you want to go to eternity in heaven or do you want to go to eternity in hell? It's all about getting your sins forgiven. It's about you. It's about you. It's about you. But what Paul says here is that the gospel coming to you Yes, those tertiary and secondary realities are there and we should rejoice over them. But what Paul points our attention to is that this whole salvation enterprise, this whole saving faith, this whole gospel, the purpose of it is to reunite human beings to their created purpose, realigning us to the glory of God. Do you see that? Do you see it in the text? It's right there. We're not reading it in there. I'm not trying to force it. It's just there. It's just that our human-centered tendencies, our human-centered, man-centered tendencies oftentimes cause us to read past phrases like this. And we don't see it. Here's what Paul is ultimately saying. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel of God doesn't make sense to you. It's veiled. It's misunderstood. You don't understand it. You don't care about it. Our minds, he says, are blinded in such a way that we, we cannot see it. We cannot appreciate the light of Jesus' gospel. But verse 6 says that, this, that God, the same God who created this world out of nothing, who shone his light into the darkness of this, uh, this world, that same God shone his saving light into our darkened hearts of self-glory to remove the veil, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The picture that Paul paints here is absolutely stunning. There is so much more to our salvation than normally meets the naked eye. A key aspect of becoming a Christ follower, a demonstrable effect of saving faith in Jesus' gospel is to align your life with the glory of God. And because God's glory is his supreme passion, and because God's glory is our supreme satisfaction, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms our lives so that we actually fulfill the very reason for which God created us. The gospel of Jesus gives us new eyes to see the beauty of God's glory. The gospel of Jesus gives us a new mind to comprehend the truth of God's glory. And it gives us a new heart that beats for and appreciates God's glory. And all of this is actualized through Jesus Christ himself, who was never 
a glory robber. He did perfectly what all of us were created to do, but what none of us could ever do on our own. In John 17, 4, Jesus said this, and this is a bold statement. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So now, through faith in Jesus, in any way, big or small, that you or I glorify God in our everyday lives, we should be able to say, that's not me. The scriptures make clear that my natural bent is not to treasure God's glory. The scriptures make it clear that, that, that Chris James does not, does, was not born into this world loving and satisfied by the glory of God. So if in any way I am satisfied by the glory of God, if in any way the glory of God emanates from my life and I obey him, it must have come from someone else. And the Bible says that that someone else is Jesus. See, left to ourselves, we're all glory robbers. We're all glory robbers on any given day. But through faith in Jesus' gospel, we're glory deflectors. We give God all the glory. And so with all these truths laid down, we come to the only fitting response. Two foundational truths, one universal problem, one transformational solution. And lastly, I want you to see the result. The consummation, one consuming passion in our life. One consuming passion. We live all of life for the glory of God. This is what motivates us here at Mill City Church. We live all of life for the glory of God. Perhaps Paul sums it up best. He sums up the Christian life best this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, so whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, let me take you back to the beginning of this morning's message. If God's glory is his supreme passion, then the one consuming passion of your life and my life should be to increasingly align our lives with God's passion. I mean, doesn't it make sense as a Christian that, that, what, that, what, my, that what God's central passion is should be my central passion? In other words, that passion should be in everything we do as individuals or collectively as a body should be worship to God. You see, culturally in America, when we think about worship, we think about an hour on Sunday morning. It's this time. I worship here. It's compartmentalized. It's in a lockbox at this specific address. But brothers and sisters, through the gospel, what Paul is pointing us towards here is that Sunday is not the end of our worship. Sunday morning is the beginning of our worship. Each week we we gather here to recommit ourselves to give a corporate praise and worship to God together as the body But then after we get through singing and praying and 
preaching and fellowshipping together, then what we do, and we do this every week here at Mill City, we send each other out into our everyday lives so that every day, every hour, every moment, every action, we want to now worship God through all of life. Worship is not just about an hour. It's not just about a place. It's about a lifestyle. That means that you can and should worship God in all that you do. You can worship God through your attitude and through your words towards other people and your disposition towards others. You you can worship God when you work. You can glorify God by working diligently and honestly while respecting your boss and your fellow coworkers. When you're in class, you can glorify God by thanking him, thanking him that you actually have the ability to gain an education in a very sought out place like schools in the United States of America. When you pursue spiritual disciplines, You glorify God by regularly enjoying God's presence in your individual walk with Jesus. When you follow through with commitments, you glorify God by keeping your word. When you tell the truth, you glorify God by emulating your Savior who called himself the truth. When you share your resources with others, you glorify God by obeying his commands to look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. When you forgive, when you do the hard work of forgiving your brother or your sister, you glorify God by showing others what God has shown you. When you serve your husband or your wife, or your kids, your parents, when you serve your siblings or serve your roommates at home, you glorify God by doing to others what Jesus has done towards you. Friends, we could do this all afternoon. We glorify God in all of life. And this is where I want you to see congruency There is congruency between what we say we believe and how we're supposed to live life. And it all comes back to the glory of God. And so friends, as we begin this sermon series, as we kick off the fall semester, I just wanna ground us this morning because for 14 years, Mill City Church has existed to bring God glory. And everything that we do and everything that we say, we do this imperfectly, but it's what animates us and it's what motivates us. It is the overarching direction towards which we want to point every human being we come in contact with. And so this morning, whether whether you've been a member of Mill City for 14 years like me, or whether today is your very first Sunday, I want to remind you why we started our church in the first place. It's the glory of God. I want to remind you why we do everything that we do as a church. It's for the glory of God. Even in our mission to reach others with the gospel, the motivation is worship. We want to worship God 
by drawing others to embrace their God-given reason for existence, to also worship, to cease being a glory robber and become a glory giver to the one true God who deserves the worship of their heart. That's our motivation. And I, and I wonder this morning, is, is that you today? I wonder this morning through hearing God's word and, and, and being opened, the scriptures open to your heart. Like I'm wondering if for the very first time, are you comprehending or seeing the beauty of the glory of God? Are you seeing your reason for existence? Is God nudging your hearts and pulling him towards, pulling, pulling you towards himself? Are you sensing today that God is opening you up to align the passion of your life with the passion of his heart? Then what I want you to know is that we here at Mill City want to walk alongside of you. We want to help you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what God is doing. We want to hear how you're processing. Because as we say so often at Mill City, spiritual decisions should not be made in isolation. They should be in the context of Christian community. We would love to help you think through these issues and these truths in your life. And so would you communicate with us? It could be that you could come and talk to me or one of the other leaders or elders or community group leaders after worship today or just a friend sitting next to you. It could be that you want to fill out a connection card and send that in. However you do it, connect with us if God is moving in your heart in a meaningful way. Father, today we come before you and we just recommit ourselves to you. Lord, I know myself on any given day I get distracted. On any given day I rob glory. On any given day I think that life is my party. And Lord, I know that that's the story for each and every one of us in this room. So Lord, this morning I just simply pray, would you recommit us Realign our hearts with your glory. Realign our hearts so that we're motivated by you first and foremost and that we see our lives in context of what you are doing. Lord, bring us to Jesus. Remind us of Jesus because so many of us are so imperfect and we, and we falter in so many ways. We get discouraged and we beat ourselves up. Lord, we turn to Jesus today because Jesus is the one who perfectly glorified you the way we were supposed to, but we never could on our own. So may our hope today be in what Jesus has done on our behalf and not working ourselves up to be perfect like we never could be on our own. Father, realign us to love and hope in your gospel of glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.